On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. These doctors came by the house and asked me if I would uh, stop by the uh, Oakland Children's Hospital. They thought I could lend some comedy to the scene and entertain the kids. And, and on the way out the door, somebody handed me a red rubber nose and said, take this along. <laughs> it might be useful. And it was absolutely positively useful. Was that the first time you wore a red nose? Maybe. I used to uh, draw it on with, uh, I think, Stein's makeup. I used to get a kit and uh, I could put the red on that way and then I couldn't lose it because it was attached to my face and I'd paint up the kids. We used to uh, have this uh, projector that we could shoot movies on the wall of the day room and uh, we had Godzilla queued up to show and it this kid's little sister said, we could show the movie on Billy's head. <laughs> and indeed, he had no hair. He was bald as a billiard. And, and I had covered his head with clown white. I thought there was no reason why we couldn't show Godzilla on his head until his neck got stiff or sore. And so <laughs> we started out showing Godzilla on his head when this team of doctors from Japan came in to check out our unit. <laughs> oh, God, the sound of their brains hitting the linoleum when they saw this was just too cosmic to imagine. We could show the movie on Billy's head. I remember that vividly as it was yesterday. Could we, could we please, Wavy Gravy? Could we show Gazilla on my head? Well, you bet, Billy. <laughs> strange but true. That's the way I like them, strange but true. And I always had my ectar, and I ran into this amazing girl named Paris Duchamp, who had had a hundred operations for cancer and was facing still another one. And we, we bonded deeply. And uh, when it came her turn for her big surgery, I was kind of a super duper whooper star back then. And I had uh, everybody in the free world sending healing vibes to Paris and her surgery. And it was indeed successful. And she went back to her task of being a shortstop in the Little League and hit a lot of home runs and uh, did very well for quite some time and then didn't. And uh, that broke my heart. Welcome to American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. Oh, what the chicken say when it laid the square egg? Said, ouch, that hurt my butt. <laughs> I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this episode, we go back to the beginning, to Wavy's childhood, youth, and teen years, a few rabbit hole detours along the way. Most people know Wavy Gravy as the MC of Woodstock or recall Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor, released in 1993 and retired in 2001. Well, listeners, American Prankster will reveal that Wavy Gravy is far more than an ice cream. Yeah, I would like to be more than an ice cream. I would like to be uh, a yogurt. 
So although I've known Wavy from Camp Winter Rainbow for over 40 years and spent 15 hours interviewing him for this podcast, I wanted to know more. So I called one of Wavy's best friends, Dr. Larry Brilliant, an epidemiologist known for helping to eradicate smallpox on planet Earth. No big deal. Nice to see you. Thank you for meeting me. Do you know what I'm up to? It's so wonderful to see you. Whatever you're up to, I'm happy about Larry's also the chairman of the board to eradicate pandemics, a TED Prize winner, and launcher of Google's philanthropic enterprises. Larry knows things, and he's known Wavy since the mid-1960s. I love Wavy Gravy. Um, He's the best. The, The term bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a person who's able to reach nirvana, but delays doing so out of compassion in order to save others who are suffering. And nirvana is a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering, desire, or a sense of self. I believe that what Buddha had in mind when the term bodhisattva came is wavy gravy. You know the, the old Yiddish expression, it's Hebrew, but Yiddish, Lamed uh, Vav? Well, it means 36 or 37. I always forget which it is. But the uh, idea uh, began with Noah, that uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament, the story is that God asked Noah to build an ark and then to bring people on board. And of course, in the Old Testament, Noah just does it. But in the, uh, the funny part of the Old Testament, which is kept secret, uh, Noah resists and says, God, wait, 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 let me get this clear. You want me to bring all the animals in the world, it's a mess, onto the ark, who's going to clean up after them, and all of my family, and then go out to sea because you're going to flood the world and kill everybody? And then may I ask you, you're doing this because what? One person's bad? Everybody's bad? Some percentage of the people are bad? Could you clarify a little bit? And God said, well, people are bad. People's not enough for me, Noah says. I want you to be more specific. He says, well, more than half of the people are bad. And then uh, Noah says, well, wait a minute. Once we've done this and we've got the whole ark thing done and the flood has come and it's gone, and then we're back. You got to promise you'll never do it again. And God says, I won't promise. Well, Noah said, I'm not going to build you an ark just for now. I mean, I just don't take temporary jobs. I mean, it's got to be a, a career. If I'm building an ark and we're going to go out and you're going to kill everybody except my family, then you got to promise me that when we come back, you won't do it again. And God said, no, no, I won't do that because there will always be bad people. And they begin to handle. They begin to negotiate. And Noah says, okay, if one person is good, you won't destroy the world. God said, no. If 90% of people are good, then I won't destroy the world. And it goes from Noah saying one and God saying 90%. And God says, all right, 85%. If 85% of people are good, Noah says, no. How about if two people are good? And it goes back and forth, and they finally decide on 36 or 37, which is the Lama Dvav. And then Noah says to God, you're telling me that if at every given time in history there will be 36 or 37 perfect masters, hidden Noahs of the truth, who are kind and loving and just, you promise you will never again destroy the world. And God says, you have a deal. And as a son of the covenant, I'm going to cut off a little bit of your penis. And they say, done. And the deal is sealed. And I think Wavy's one of those Lama Dvavs. Wavy! 
Yeah. Well, the funny mantra is connected with uh, the world religion that I helped to found called the First Church of Fun. And uh, you're walking along and you look at somebody and you think they may be a funny, another member of the church. So you would look at each other and swivel around and put your butts together, bend over and look between your legs. Then you would reach in underneath and cross your arms and hold on to each other. And at that point, you would ask if you knew the, the mantra to, that was the one for that particular time frame, you would say, what's green and white and hops? And the answer was, a frog sandwich to go. <laughs> and once you established that, we knew you were a funny. And we could talk about, you know, blowing up the phone company or whatever we were up to. And nobody could read our lips bent over like that. It was totally safe. And we could discuss uh, naughty shenanigans at, at will, because uh, there we were, bent over butt to butt. And nobody could uh, interpret our what our shenanigans were about to become. Although we never did blow up a phone company. We could have talked about it because nobody could read our lips. That was the thing. Well, Bodhisattva Church of Fun founders come from somewhere, and Wavy came from Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, it seems like it was almost yesterday. It was uh, May 15, 1936, that I popped out of my mama's interior and came into the world in Princeton, New Jersey, where I was uh, almost immediately taken off into the mountains because the Martians had landed. I am not making this up. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. Perhaps you heard of it. People misconstrued. They didn't really land. They had tuned into a program by Orson Welles that had the Martians landing as a news program, and people thought it was real. Among those people were my parents, who threw me into an automobile and took me into the mountains. War of the Worlds, a radio play by Orson Welles, which was misconstrued as actual news, was broadcast in 1938 when Wavy was two. Tell us about your parents. They left a long time ago. They're demised. My dad was an architect, and he did a lot of stuff in uh, Venezuela, in Caracas. My dad did the children's wing at the Metropolitan, and he also did uh, the uh, monument on the top of Whiteface Mountain in upstate New York, which was an amazing uh, piece of... Uh, architectural sculpture that you would get out of your car and walk inside and look at stuff. New architecture. And uh, my mom was sick of him being away, so uh, she got divorced. And I moved from Princeton, New Jersey to Albany, New York, 
I would get on the train in Albany, New York, and go to New York City and meet my dad in Grand Central Station by the clock in the middle of the darn place. That's where everybody met everybody. One would think it would be rather congested, but it, it seemed to be fine. And then he would scoop me up and take me to Radio City to see the Rockets or to Ringling Brothers Circus. And then he would scoop me up and take me to uh, New Jersey <laughs> or to his office in New York where he was uh, being an architect. Wavy's childhood, while somewhat unusual due to his divorced parents, a rarity in the 1930s and 40s, became distinctly unique when his neighbor began taking little Hugh Romney on walks. When I was five years old, my mama would put me in the front yard for uh, my morning airing because uh, I was stinky. And who came by on his uh, morning walk? was Albert Einstein. Nobel Prize-winning scientist Albert Einstein was a physicist who developed the theory of relativity. Who became enamored by me because I think I sort of resembled a tiny Winston Churchill. And he asked my mother, could uh, he take me for a walk around the block? And her flabber was totally gassed and she agreed. And so, I got to go around the block for a number of mornings with Albert freaking Einstein. So five-year-old Wavy is being taken on neighborhood walks with one of the greatest science minds in history. People ask me, what do you say to me? Hey, I was five. (laughs) I remember none of our discourse. I do remember his odor. He had his own peculiar smell. (laughs) Something that you remember in your early days, uh, not conversations, but smells and sights. Did Einstein's naturally inquisitive mind influence Baby Wavy to become a questioner of all things traditional, oppressive, and mysterious? I remember he had a shock of hair predating Don King by at least half a century. He had uh, big eyebrows and uh, a smell. And I've never smelled it since, but someday I'll walk up to somebody and say, Hey man, you smell like Albert Einstein. Well, one thing is sure. Strolling with Einstein set the stage for Wavy to consistently find himself in the company of iconic humans and historic moments. Like this one in 1963. Because I have a dream. Yeah, Wavy was there. My four little children. Of course, that's Martin Luther King, you guys. Will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Uh, We had this big uh, march on Washington. And uh, I rode down from New York with the Living Theater, Julian Beck and Judith Molina. Now, Wavy just mentioned the Living Theater. They are the oldest experimental theater group in America, founded in 1947 and famous for nudity on stage. And there was Gary Goodrow and 
Carl Gottlieb, and Larry Hank, a lot of very, very far out people. All the other people Wavy mentioned were part of the committee improv troupe of San Francisco, which Wavy joined in 1963. And uh, I got uh, separated into this because Washington was actually bathed in buses. There were jillions of buses and people spilling out of the buses and making their way toward the reflecting pool. And I got somehow swept into the entourage of Peter, Paul, and Mary, who were on the bill. So the 1963 March on Washington, most famous for Martin Luther King Jr.'s world-famous I Have a Dream speech, also featured a lineup of musicians, including Wavy's friends Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I, of course, uh, one of my first gigs was uh, opening for Peter, Paul, and Mary at the bitter end. And so we we had... Tracks and uh, Noel Stuckey and I went back to early gaslight days where he would do automobiles and toilets flushing and he could make all these sound effects. The Stuckey Wavy is talking about is Noel Paul Stuckey, the Paul in Peter, Paul and Mary. He and Wavy met in the gaslight cafe years of the early 1960s. And then who'd have thunk it that he would become this great singer, guitar player and all, but anyhow... We got uh, swept along, and uh, I ended up sitting next to Bob Dylan and Joan C. Baez as uh, Martin Luther King began to speak. When we let it rain from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And I said to Dylan, I hope he's over quick, Mahalia Jackson's on next. But then, as the words rolled out of his mouth, the sky turned into rainbows, and if I, I didn't care if he spoke for eternity. It was just uh, the most amazing assemblage of, of one word after the other that I had ever experienced in my conscious existence. Now, before Wavy found himself in the metamorphic 1960s, he was a young boy growing up in the 1940s through World War II. When the president died, that's Roosevelt. I was a a little boy playing a soldier in the trenches of my yard, and suddenly there's all this sad music and everybody is crying, and that's what I remember. (laughs) Not much, because I was just a a ute, very much a ute. And uh, I had a helmet and a fake gun, a rifle, bolt action. And I would uh, shoot Germans and Japanese from my trench. We had a trench in the yard. And also, uh, what else did we have? Oh, when, when in our cowboy vector, along with my amigo Mason Riggin, we had our own toilet, which we made out of a uh, Coke box with a hole in it. And I remember what was going on. Oh, we were playing cowboy. We'd just seen... Uh, 
a hot blog Cassidy movie. And uh, they were uh, hung somebody from a sour apple tree. So we set up a noose and we're going to hang each other. And uh, Mason Riggin was testing out our hanging noose and he started to turn blue so i ran and got his father who cut him down and then was really pissed off because of our pooping station so he not only got strangled by his rope but he got spanked by his father for pooping in the woods (laughs) i love this story because Wavy's childhood game of extreme make-believe illustrates an early total dedication to playing pretend and his own reality. In Chicago, I uh, got this three-foot inflatable plastic banana because I was getting sick of being tired of getting stopped by police because I was wearing a World War I jumpsuit with an aviator hat and a duck beak that squeaked and two piece eyes for eyes and uh by Chicago, Wavy means when he was protesting the 1968-69 trial of the Chicago 7, which was an attack by the U.S. government on a group of disparate activists, including Wavy's good friend, Abby Hoffman. The police always wanted to wonder what I was up to. So once I got the banana and inflated it, I'd just say I'm walking my banana, officer, and they didn't want to talk anymore. It worked quite well. If you're walking across Chicago, you should do it with a a three-foot inflatable banana, and you'll be impervious to being captured and (laughs) popped in the slammer. They never wanted to book you for obstruction with a banana. Tell me about how you learned improvisation. (sighs) Improv. uh, First at, what's it called, Boston University. They had a great theater school. I learned some improv there and then ended up uh, teaching improv to contract players in Hollywood, where Jahanara was a contract player. Jahanara is Wavy's wife of over 50 years. And uh, who else was a contract player was Harrison Ford. Just in case you're an alien visitor to planet Earth, Harrison Ford is an American movie star, best known as Han Solo in Star Wars and Indiana Jones who I actually prepped uh, for an audition for uh, the graduate. I put pennies in his loafers, but it didn't work. Dustin Hoffman got the part. But anyhow, I became very good friends with Harry, and he was a carpenter, a carpenter kitty, as uh, Lord Buckley would talk about. Lord Buckley was an American stand-up comedian in the 1940s and 50s, but back to Wavy and Harrison Ford. And uh, made great cabinets for Severn Darden who was always uh, manacling little girls who brought scripts to him to the cabinetry of Harrison Ford. And we'd have to get somebody to undo the combination and set them free. (laughs) Severin was like that. Severin Darden, born in 1929, died in 1995, was an actor, comedian, and founding member of the Second City Improv Comedy Troupe and one of Wavy's best friends in the 1960s. Severin Darden's best known for playing the human leader, Culp, in the Planet of the Apes movies. Will you declare to be seen, to be heard, and dope up into the furniture your motto to improv students? What you're going to be able to do the most? I don't know. What What were you thinking? To be seen, to be heard. Oh, that's Viola. Viola. Wavy's talking about Viola Spolin. 
born in 1906, died in 1994. Viola was an American theater innovator who wrote Improvisation in Theater, a Bible of improv theater games played by every theater student on planet Earth. To be seen, to be heard, and don't bump into the furniture. I love that. It's a good thing. Viola Spolin, she was a great one. Was she your teacher? I did some time with Viola. So back to young Hugh Romney. He lived with his mom and dad, who soon divorced and remarried, having other children with new spouses, Wavy's half-brothers. My mom had a kid with uh, my stepfather, and my dad had a kid with a stepmom. My stepbrother on my mom's vector is a dwarf. Oh! Exactly. (laughs) It's definitely an O. And his name is Donald, and he is adorable. And he has, uh, he's married a regular-sized honey, and uh, they have an abundance of issues. And when they all get together for the Christmas card, they fill up the entire paper. There's a bunch of them. And they live in Maine. And uh, (coughs) my other half-brother, Paul, I think he is demised from my dad's side, who is also demised. As a teen, Wavy cultivated his love of comedy, listening to the Bob and Ray show on the radio. How do you do? Stranger in the town? Yes, I am. I would like to introduce myself. I'm Watrous J. Finduddy. How do you do, Mr. Fin? What'd you say it was? Watrous J. Finduddy. You see, I sponsored the installation of these parking meters in this fair city of Frenelsbury. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were, God, what, I guess, freshmen in, in high school, I think. Myself and uh, a couple of other people knew about it. We'd stay up late. We'd wait until our parents left, and we'd sneak the radio under the covers. And then we'd uh, come to class the next day and talk about it. And nobody else knew what we were talking about. Of course they didn't. We're hilarious and abstract and unusual. And back in that time, that was certainly unique. They were they were two of a kind. There was uh, nothing similar anywhere. One of them was, was it Bob Goulding? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. I almost remember their last names. I think one was the Goulding. I'm not sure. Bob. As Wavy and I Skyped, I quickly Googled Bob and Ray. It was um, Bob, Elliot, and Ray Goulding. Bob and Ray were radio announcers who got their own TV comedy show in 1946. But as Wavy says, he listened to them on the radio under the covers. How do you know that? I just Googled it while we were chatting. Oh, oh, (laughs) I don't even know what Google is. I know Barney Google. He had googly eyes. Barney Google and his sidekick Snuffy Smith is an American comic strip that debuted in 1919. The comic strip Barney Google and Snuffy Smith inspired the song in 1923, Barney Google with a goo goo googly eyes. Did you know that? Know. Yeah, goo goo googly eyes, Barney yeah. Google. Yeah, that's him. Barney Google with a goo goo googly eyes. Wavy went to high school in the 1950s, and before graduating in 1954, always an innovator, he started a baseball bookie business. Uh, If your uh, player got three hits, I would pay up uh, three to one or something like four to one. Otherwise, you gave me the money, and I used to make a lot of money that way because 
people very seldom got three hits. It was great. I don't think my parents were aware that I was doing it. I don't. <laughs> Nobody else was as quick as they were. So was this business being a bookie for baseball your how you made money in high school? Oh yeah, yeah. You you. I would I would pay. It seemed like a great deal if they got three hits. I would pay up something like five to one, but hardly anybody ever got three hits, and they didn't realize that for quite a for for almost to the end of the school year that it's really difficult to get three hits in a game. Like most kids his age, Wavy liked baseball. Oh, I liked the Philadelphia Phillies when I was a, a, a youth. And there was a, a player I liked named Richie Ashburn, and they had a great pitcher named Robin Roberts, who was really kind of cool. And they were called the Whiz Kids. I just remembered that this very second. I could be wrong. Google them and see if they were called the Whiz Kids. Whiz Kids, Philadelphia. W, w H I Z. Yeah, I think so. Because they were Whiz Kids baseball, yeah, that's right. They were really young. That's why they call them that. Because they were, they were almost children, but they were really good, and they could run very fast. Also, nobody else was as quick as they were. What would you spend your your baseball money on? Uh, certainly not drugs. <laughs> I didn't know what they were. <laughs> if I'd known, I might have. <laughs> Uh, what did I spend it on? That's a good question. I imagine uh, mallow cups. <laughs> did you ever have one of those? Yeah, they're delicious. Yes, yes. Marvelous, marvelous confection. I spent oh. it all on mallow cups <laughs> and blueberry ice cream. That's why every bite's a luscious, chewy treat. treat, treat, treat. Now, Wavy's high school years transpired in the 1950s. Here's historian author Dennis McNally about that time. You might be old enough, although I think most of your listeners will probably not be old enough to have ever watched something like Father Knows Best or Leave it to Beaver or any of those 50s sitcoms. But the fact is that most of them, there was this underlying principle that, in fact, that was reality, that uh, reality was that everybody was white and that all the problems were minor and moms wore aprons and stayed home, etc. Okay, so that's the worldview. Leave it to Beaver. So Wavy came of age during a time of social conformity when Leave it to Beaver was the aspirational perfect family. Well, in fact, it was also the decade of Rosa Parks refusing to sit on the back of the bus, the anti-communist witch hunt McCarthy trials, and the birth and rise of rock and roll, jazz, and the beboppers. I was different than the, the, the people in Connecticut. How did you learn about jazz? Jazz, jazz, the lineage descended from drum refrains beyond the flight of wild birds, a gift of joy that greets these walls in four, four time. Uh, how did I? God, I got into it in, in, in uh, high school. And uh, this other uh, friend of mine, everybody else was wearing white buck shoes and khaki pants, and I wore peg pants and blue suede shoes and a, a wraparound jacket uh, with a 
little belt. It was blue, as I remember correctly. And a skinny tie. <laughs> That's probably what I spent my baseball winnings on, was duds and a Billy Eckstein collar. Oh, my God. Billy Eckstein sung, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> he was a gentleman of color and quite, quite extraordinary. And on my uh, time off, I would go to Birdland in New York City and see Charlie Parker and people of this ilk. And that's what I did. A natural-born dissident, music, and word enthusiast, Wavy was a bebopper. A chicka chicka chicka, hit that jive jack, put it in your pocket, lock it back, go downtown to see a man, I ain't got time to shake your hand, sabroso, plop plop, is what you say when you're feeling fine, sabroso, plop plop. With either Burbo Rooney or Mellow Wine. Now, bebop is a form of jazz invented in the 1940s by black jazz artists breaking away from the big bands. But who I became enamored with was Slim Gaylard. You'd like to beat out a little number that's real groovy or Rooney titled Dunking Bagels or Rowdy, right, Rooty. Wavy's jazz hero, Slim Gaylard, was an American jazz musician born in 1911, known for his comedic singing and wordplay. Slim Gaylard, fluent in five languages, sang in his own made-up language and even wrote his own dictionary. Is what you say when you're feeling fine, Sabroso, plop, plop, with either Burbo Rooney or Mellow Wine. And Slim Gaylord said to me, keep drinking them Rheingold Roonies. <laughs> And that's that was a beer. <laughs> My beer is Rheingold, the dry beer. East side, west side, and up, down, and down. Rheingold Extra Dry Beer is the beer of great renown. So Wavy graduated high school and joined the Army, luckily just missing the Korean War, which ended in 1953. They gave us money to go to college. That's what why I volunteered for the draft to start with, was to be able to go to college, because uh, my mother and father were uh, divorced and remarried and had children of their own, so I was the odd thing out, so I had to figure something, and my high school advisor suggested that I volunteer for the draft, so I did uh, two years. Luckily, Wavy got some good advice before he started basic training. My mom was in Connecticut and married this guy who was during World War II an aide to Omar Bradley. Omar Bradley was a senior officer in the U.S. Army during and after World War II. Who advised me well. Don't volunteer for anything except a typist or a sign painter. Even in the Army, Wavy was unique. He was assigned to the sign department. And I never had to do basic training because, uh, well, they said, uh, okay, anybody here who could do sign painting, 
And I knew that was the thing, typing or sign painting. It was safe. I raised my hand. They sent me home to get my art supplies. I had none. My parents thought I had snuck out of the army and they pulled down the shades. And I said, no, I'm just here to get art supplies and go back. So they were very relieved that I had not gone A-W-L-L immediately, whatever that stands for. Oh, absent without leave, A-W-O-L. That's Morse code, invented in the 1830s by Samuel Morse, an American inventor and painter. Now, Morse code assigns a set of dots and dashes to each letter of the alphabet, allowing for the easy transmission of complex messages across telegraph lines. I went to Morse code school, which I got very good at that. Along with sign painting, Wavy was assigned to the Morse code department of the U.S. Army. Being a a Morse code operator, which is what I did for the government. Watch this. That's something that we can't say on the radio. What did you say in Morse code? I just did fuck you at you. So Wavy is fluent in Morse code. That's amazing. I got so I could say that with a Morse code key faster than anybody else in the entire <laughs> service of the, the, of the code people. And they, the people in charge would always say, who did that? Who said that? And I would, of course, never tell. <laughs> and I would enjoy doing that and getting them all upset. Aha. Wavy's first public subversive act as an adult, using humor as a weapon. Both rebellious and entertaining, exhibiting his true colors as a natural-born clown and rabble-rouser. And when I was in the service, I used to get a schnitzel sandwich, and I forgot about that till this this very minute. I blasted back to... uh, (laughs) You run the U.S. 51312982. And I'm in Germany doing Morse code. Mustard? And, uh, oh, God, not on the, this particular schnitzel. No, no mustard. I, I would like some sauerkraut on the side and maybe mashed potatoes. And uh, schnitzel, oh, God, I'm tasting it now. I'm getting shivers. The schnitzel <laughs> shivers. After this schnitzel conversation, I got Wavy a gift certificate to a schnitzel restaurant in Berkeley. It felt appropriate. But I had not remembered my uh, schnitzel that I had in uh, 1955, probably 1957 in Wiesbaden, Germany. I was on a a leave from uh, my Morse code venture. You had to do uh, three days on. That's night and day. You did a shift of uh, six hours, then you collapsed for four hours, and then you do another six hours and like that until they spat you out and got others. Oh, my God. I can't believe I did this. But it was it was better than other things. So schnitzel and worst weren't the only things young Hugh Romney enjoyed while in the Army. Remember, he was only 18 or 19 when he was in the Army. I remember my first hooker in Madrid. It just popped in my mind. I just remembered that. Holy moly. Uh, It was uh, smoldery 
And uh, then uh, in Italy, uh, San Felicia Shisharo, where the Cersei uh, uh, was born on the Terrarian Sea. I would, would go there when I was not being a Morse code operator, which is what I did for the government. Now, after Morse coding fuck you throughout Europe and experiencing the delights of the continent, Hugh Romney heads to Boston University's theater department on the GI Bill. But before he goes to college, Wavy smokes pot for the very first time. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Now, marijuana has a long history of deliberate vilification in America, and it started at the end of Prohibition in 1933, when the politician in charge of enforcing Prohibition, Harry Anslinger, was seeking job security. His job as an alcohol prohibition enforcer was going away. He needed something else to prohibit. So he started a robust smear campaign against pot. Now, Harry Anslinger was an old-fashioned racist, and he hated jazz musicians, who were frequent users of cannabis. And in the 1950s, when a young Hugh Romney got into jazz, the demonization of pot was in full swing. Smoking the soul-destroying reefer, they find a moment's pleasure, but at a terrible price. Debauchery, violence, murder, suicide. An individualist and critical thinker from the start, anti-marijuana propaganda didn't affect Wavy. Do I remember the first time? Oh yeah, I think so. I think we were we had a coffee house in Kennebunkport, Maine, and uh, I smoked it, and I we covered an automobile with shaving cream, and uh, I was beating on the the hood with a, a tennis ball can, maintaining I was sending telegraph messages around the world. God, I can't believe I remember that, but I, I was certain I, that's what I was doing. That was quite wonderful. We, uh, myself and, uh, and John Adams, uh, we were the two vets at BU. We, we both were uh, going to school under the GI Bill. He was in intelligence and I was not. <laughs> it's 1956. The Montgomery bus boycott, ignited by Rosa Parks' reluctance to move to the back of the bus, has caused the Alabama courts to rule bus segregation unconstitutional. Eisenhower is president, Nixon is his VP, and Eisenhower adds the phrase, under God, to the Pledge of Allegiance, while Elvis Presley fever sweeps the country. That's what's going on when Wavy enters... Boston University. We had this killer, killer theater school in Boston. And it was on uh, this beautiful little street called St. Batolph Street. And there was ivy all over the building. At college, Wavy begins performing. And his lifelong passion for the artistic avant-garde is ignited in his dance class with instructor none other than Martha Graham. Oh, yes. I was studying dance with Martha Graham. And we were into... Uh, a reefer, <laughs> which was cool hip talk for uh, marijuana cannabis sativa, which we would enjoy on the roof of Boston University. Then we would come down and take Martha Graham's class. Martha Graham was an American modern dancer and choreographer named by Time magazine as Dancer of the Century. 
She wanted me to work on my contractions. She was probably more responsible than anybody for my series of spinal fusions. Thanks, Martha. Yeah, did whatever she wanted because she was very uh, forceful. And when a dancer is at the peak of his power, he has two lovely, fragile, perishable things. One is spontaneity, but it is something arrived at over years and years of training. That's Martha Graham. It's not a mere chance. The other is simplicity, but that also is a different simplicity. It's the state of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. The uh, main people of the uh, Boston University came over to inspect our unit, and they said, my God, they aren't doing social studies, and they're just doing theater. Theater dressing room is a very special place where the act of theater begins. She had these feet that were like, she's just a goddess and uh, formidable feet. And I was, you know, down there on the ground. And so I had a close-up of Martha Graham's feet. I, I adored them. I would lick them if I could have, but I didn't. Unfortunately, I probably should have. While in college, Wavy reads news of the beatniks of the West Coast putting on shows in coffee shops, which inspires him to do the same in Boston, the first of its kind west of the Rockies. Well, hey, I started uh, jazz and poetry on the East Coast. I had read about it in Time magazine that they were doing it on the West Coast. And I said, hey, I got poems. I know poets. And uh, we began to do uh jazz and poetry. So collegiate Wavy, still Hugh Romney, blazes the trail for jazz and poetry on the East Coast, establishing his lifelong enthusiasm for putting on a show. 80% of the people in the world that are blind do not need to be blind and can get their sight back for not very much money. And so I saw that and I was horrified. And I would sidle up to, like, say, Jackson Brown, and I would share this fact with him. And he'd say, what can we do? I said, let's put on a show. So Wavy's talking about the benefit shows he organizes and MCs for SAVA, the nonprofit he helped found, which performs free eye surgeries throughout the world. And it came to pass that we did a show and we that seemed to work out okay. I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I'm still doing it. So Wavy's passion for showbiz started at Boston University. And his drive to put on a show started at a pizzeria called The Pizza Pebble, located under a bar called The Rock. Oh, The, the, the Rock was the bar on Huntington Avenue. And uh, uh, there was a pizza place in the basement called The Pebble in the Rock. He starts putting on shows at The Pebble in the Rock the pizza parlor. We took over and I got all the people from art school to come and decorate and we put in black tablecloths and did jazz and poetry. We started jazz and poetry on the East Coast, actually. Now beatniks, the American subculture of dissidents from the 1950s, are known for producing jazz and poetry shows in coffee shops and clearly in pizza parlors. There in, in Boston on Huntington Avenue. Yeah. That was that was basically it. I'm trying to remember more, and I can't. 
So this is Wavy's first official move into being a beatnik, rather than just a beatnik observer. The museum school, where the, who we got to to decorate, they they did the black tablecloths and oh mobiles. We had mobiles, which uh, nobody ever saw that. What's that stuff hanging from the ceiling? It's a mobile. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mobiles, another signature of beatniks, of innovators. Cool. No, it was it was frozen solid, <laughs> beyond cool. It was it was unique. So after college, Wavy headed to New York City, but before the Big Apple, he had a short six-month sojourn back in Connecticut, living with his mom. Now, unable to stay away from showbiz, while in Hartford, he managed to make the city a little bit cooler when he started producing jazz and poetry shows. To go to Hartford, how did I end up? Well, I got before the neighborhood playhouse, and after Boston University, I, I had him crashed and burned and ended up living in Hartford for about six months. This was uh, very unusual. I knew about... Uh, uh, Hartford, Connecticut, because that's where I I kind of evolved. Uh, I went to uh, high school in West Hartford, and what the, there was the museum school in the, of the Wordsworth Anthenaeum, which was a cool art place. So we decided to do uh, uh, jazz and poetry at the Golden Lion, and I would get musicians from New York. Oh, it was it was on Monday. Monday nights are dark nights at New York City venues, so Mondays naturally become beatnik show nights. And we, we did it one time. They never had beatniks in, in Hartford, and we, we swooped in with a, with a boatload of beatniks. <laughs> and it was a huge, huge hit. So I could always get musicians to come to Hartford to make money. Very seldom did they have anything shaking on Mondays. So I would get really, really skilled uh, musicians to come to Hartford on Monday and do j uh, jazz and poetry, where we actually, I got a woman to come and wear leotards. They never saw that before. <laughs> it was, it was uh, quite interesting. Now, Wavy has blossomed into an authentic beatnik. It's 1956-57, and he's bringing jazz and poetry shows to Hartford, Connecticut, complete with leotards, a signature, along with jazz and poetry, of the beatniks. I had this uh, uh, roommate. Oh, my God. He made armor, like, like breastplates and swords and stuff like that. I don't know what for, because nobody really wanted any, but... But he, it was gorgeous stuff. And I think eventually he found a market for it. And uh, and it was like for a year or something like that, it went on. Monday Mondays were in Hartford. Wherever I was, I'd go to Hartford. At the Golden Lion, which was right across the street from the railroad station in Hartford, in case you were looking for it. It was a, a, a rather large club to which we instituted a cover charge. Nobody had ever heard of that, which meant you had to pay to get in. That's where we made our money and how I paid the musicians. We would read poetry to jazz and it, it worked out just fine. Let's take a moment to celebrate Wavy's invention of the cover charge. 
Hallelujah. Can I get a namaste? I mean, from the beginning, Wavy was a champion of the artist, the misfit, the underdog. Here he is, around age 22, creating paths to equality and justice, a cover charge to cover the musicians. I remember jazz. I'm a hill of black jazz. Uh, No, I don't. (laughs) I asked Wavy if he remembered some of his beatnik jazz poetry, and here's what I got. Jazz, jazz, the lineage descended from drum refrains beyond the flight of wild birds, a gift of joy that creaks these walls in 4-4 time. And then I go, Yiprak Harisi, because I, I was in love with Slim Gaylard, who uh, made up all that language. Yiprak Harisi, Harisi on McDoughty. Hit that jive jack, put it in your pocket till I get back. Going downtown to see a man, ain't got time to shake your hand. Sabroso, plop, plop, is what you say when you're feeling fine. Sabroso, plop, plop, with either Burbo Rooney or Mellow Wine. And I saw him once and said to me, Keep drinking them Rheingold Roonies. Friendly, fresh thing, Rheingold. Always happily dry. The clean, clear taste you want in beer is in Rheingold Extra Dry. And the very big deal was they used to have a contest for uh, babes who would be Miss Rheingold of the various years. And they would be selected. And then they had their uh, a photo in a, in a card on Subway. Miss Rheingold of 1954. That's when I graduated high school. It was probably 1958, 59, something like that. That's actual beatnik snapping applause by real beatniks at the Gaslight Cafe in New York City. And uh, the gaslight was really quite wonderful. Hey, and that's where the snapping of fingers first developed. Ground zero for original beatniks and future celebrities. Hard Rain's Gonna Fall was actually written on my typewriter in that little room. Yeah, you heard right. Wavy's old friend Bob Dylan wrote Hard Rain's Gonna Fall on Wavy's typewriter. I guess I'm gonna let you go. It's okay, Thess. Great to talk. You, you, are, you are the best instigator of my uh, memory bank of, of any, any, anybody that's ever done it. I must say, I give you, I give you. In the next episode, we go back to 1960 to New York City to the Gaslight Cafe, where the beatnik poet comedian Hugh Romney became friends with eventual icons like Lenny Bruce, Tiny Tim, Bob Dylan, and many more. Those of you that haven't been to the Gaslight before, uh, we don't snap our fingers just to be hip, it's to keep the noise level down so the police won't come down and close us up again. I'm Rainbow Valentine, and this is American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. Thanks, boss. (laughs) 
American Pranksters, executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gertrude, Brilliant, God and Company, Thessaly, Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 2, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins and Hope for a Golden Summer, mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Jesse Meyerson, Sage Lean, Brian Slusher, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, John Did Sykes, Alan Price, Johanna Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paisano. Special thanks to our episode two guests, Dennis McNally and Larry Brilliant. Plus appreciation to all the do budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, and the incomparable Wavy Gravy. For more info, go to wavygravy.net or rainbowvalentine.com. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. <laughs> What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.